Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these men. They're such a gift to us. They're such a blessing to see men who love you, love their families, love their church, their city, and love their Savior. Strengthen them. Father, we also pray you'd strengthen Billy Graham and Franklin and Ned and Ann, Gigi, Bunny, Father, all of the kids, grandkids, we pray, Lord, that you'd sustain them as they bury Ruth and Charlotte today. We pray that would be a special bond between them and they would sense your presence in a very unique and powerful way. I pray all of the memories of that remarkable woman would be theirs to cherish. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We take a little break again from Paul's long journey to Rome. I know what you're thinking. Boy, this is a long journey to Rome. But today we're in Genesis 18 because I want to talk to fathers. Um, Somebody wants to find a a father as someone who carries pictures where his money used to be. (laughs) But it's worth it, isn't it? Even though as those kids grow up, they find out where your wallet is and ask you for a dollar here, five dollars there, and you feel like writing ATM across your forehead. Those kids are worth it. I found out that Mother's Day is the busiest day of the entire year for phone calls. That more people call on Mother's Day than any other day of the year. However, on Father's Day, they have the highest number of collect phone calls. Now, that's very insightful to me. 21 years ago, I had the privilege of becoming a dad. I'll never forget the moment. It was after a relatively long labor and delivery that Lenya had. Nathan was born. And Lenya and I had been sort of going back and forth as to what we would name this son. I wanted to name him Nathan. She had another name possibly picked out, and we hadn't agreed on it, and So then she went into labor, and she delivered Nathan, and she was exhausted. And I seized the moment. (laughs) And her sister called right after Nathan was born, and Susie said, What are you going to name this boy? And she said, I don't know. What are we going to name him, honey? I said, Nathan. (laughs) So, well, that's been his name ever since. It was such a joy at that moment, but... At the same time, and dads, you can relate to this, that first child comes into your life and the weight of being a dad starts sinking in. And you think, I don't know if I know how to do this. I don't know anything about car seats. I don't know anything about baby backpacks. I certainly don't know anything about changing diapers, though I know that's part of the package. So I found this, Dad's Guide to Changing a Baby's Diaper. Now, dads, I think you're going to especially appreciate this because it was written by Jimmy Pearsall from the Boston Red Sox. Okay, this is a dad's guide to changing a baby's diaper. Spread the diaper in the position of the diamond when you're at bat. You can picture it. It makes sense. Then fold second base down to home and set the baby on the pitcher's mound. Put first base and third base together. Bring up home plate and pin the three together. Of course, in case of rain, you got to call the game and start all over. 
I love that. I love that. Well, if you don't mind, would you just allow me to speak to all of us, but especially to men today, and especially to dads today. I don't just mean fathers. I mean dads. You know, anybody can father a child. It doesn't take a lot of skill. But to be a dad is a whole different skill set. To be a godly dad especially. I have a Life magazine, and inside is an article. It's basically a short article underneath a photograph. A photograph will take your breath away. I'll try to paint it in your mind's eye. It's a photograph of a father leaning over a balcony, holding his baby daughter by the leg as if to drop her. And the caption says, He's got the whole world in his hands. And he's holding his baby daughter over the balcony. In the foreground is a firefighter. This is a dad who is having an argument with his wife and using that child in the argument for collateral. And so I thought, how ironic you've got a father threatening to kill or hurt his daughter and a stranger, a total stranger, wanting to save that child. So this is what I was thinking. When that little baby girl grows up to be a young lady and she sees that picture, and she will, and she hears the story again, and oh yes, she will, what will that do in her mind as to what kind of a father she had? Men, we do have the whole world in our hands. So we need a plan. And I've taken you to Genesis 18 because this is God's plan for Abraham's life. It's put out beautifully. Now, in Genesis 18, there are, I've discovered, several great themes that are noteworthy, biblical, theological themes. There's a theme of righteousness versus wickedness and the theme of God's justice, etc. Those are the great theological themes that run through the chapter and yet at the same time, interwoven through it, is a more personal plan and purpose that God has for Abraham's life. You've heard the old four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. When you come to Christ, you surrender your plan to Him. You, in effect, surrender your parents' plans for you to Him. And you discover, what is God's plan for my life? And we're going to discover God had a plan for Abraham publicly, privately, with his family, and personally. So let's look at, back in verse 16, we'll begin our story, where God speaks to Abraham in an unusual fashion. And on a public level, God wants him to be an instrument of his blessing. Verse 16. Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Let me set the scene up for you because we just jumped right in the middle of the chapter. Abraham has been in his tent It's summertime, it's the heat of the day. Three strangers come from out of nowhere and visit him in his tent. He's in the tent under the tree, a terebinth tree in an area called Mamre. Now these three strangers, one is called the Lord. Two of them turn out to be the angels that are sent to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. 
So all of them disguised as human beings show up at Abraham's tent. Abraham talks with them, feeds them, and then shows them on their way, it says in verse 16, as if you need to show God the way out. But that happens. And God asks a question. And in the question that we just read, reveals in part what God's plan for Abraham's life in a public arena is. That is, he's going to be a great nation. And in him, all of the nations of the world are to be blessed. Of course, we know ultimately that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ, who would be the seed of Abraham and be able to give life to anyone who would call upon his name. That's ultimately what it's about. But you can see how this is framed. God's plan for Abraham's life publicly is to be an instrument of God's blessing. He's going to be a nation. In fact, the father of many nations, Abraham means. And I've intended that through his life, other people are blessed. Now, men, you might say, well, now, what does that have to do with me? Because chances are I'm not going to become a great nation. I only have a few kids. I don't have a nation. If you think about it, though, what is a nation? It's simply a single life taken out to great proportions. Abraham started with just Abraham and then Sarah and then two boys. And then eventually they were added to children and grandchildren and an entire nation and several came from them. So a a nation is simply a single individual whose life is expanded to great proportions. You ever wonder the purpose of your life in the public setting? Why are you breathing air for 70, 80 years? Is it just to buy clothes and have a satisfying occupation and then die one day? Or is there a greater purpose for it? Somebody wisely once said, A person all wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. See, God's purpose for Abraham wasn't to live an Abraham-centered life, but another centered life, to bless other people. That God's blessings to him would flow through him. So Abraham and the visitors go out of his tent toward, interestingly, the Dead Sea. They could see that in their view. The Dead Sea. Why is it called the Dead Sea? Because nothing's alive. No organic life, virtually. You know why it's a Dead Sea? Because the Dead Sea has a few inlets. The main one is the Jordan River flows in the Dead Sea from the north, the Arnon River from the east, the Kidron from the west, and they dump their water into the Dead Sea, but there's no outlet. Water comes in and it never leaves. It evaporates. Now, if you have water coming in and going out, like the Sea of Galilee, it's full of life. It takes in life, it gives life. I think you're seeing my point. All inlet and no outlet make a dead sea. It's that way in our personal lives. You take everything in and make it all about you and let nothing go out from your life, you too will die virtually and have no effect publicly. Now, we discover that Abraham was uniquely blessed. He had flocks, herds, real estate, as well as a family. But all of the blessings that flowed into Abraham's life also flowed out from his life. And that was God's plan and purpose for that man. In our day and age, there's a great number of men who are floundering, 
I talk to them from time to time. They're floundering as to their purpose in life. Why am I here? How could I contribute? That's a good question. And I suggest if you find yourself floundering, men, that you wake up tomorrow morning with a new strategy, you ask the Lord this, how can my life be a blessing to somebody else today? Who could I bless? What do I have that the Lord has entrusted that I could pour out into the lives of other people? If we start thinking that way, life takes on a whole new meaning. Famous psychiatrist Dr. Carl Menninger in a forum, psychological forum, was asked, Dr. Menninger, if you knew you were about to have a nervous breakdown, what would you do? He said, I'll tell you exactly what I'd do. I'd find somebody who's in a worse condition than I am, and I'd help them. If I knew I was about to have a nervous breakdown, I would now make it about somebody else rather than about me. You know, there was a young man by the name of Eddie who decided he would take his life. He jumped from a bridge into a river. Somebody saw Eddie doing this, and he thought, oh my goodness, that young man's trying to kill himself. And so the other guy, unknown guy, jumped into the river to save Eddie. The rescuer couldn't swim very well. Eddie was a good swimmer, but he wanted to be left alone. He wanted to kill himself in peace. But now a rescuer thinks, i got to rescue the guy. But Eddie, while he's in the water, looks over and sees the rescuer who's floundering and he's going down and he can't swim very well against the current. And Eddie thinks, if I don't save this guy, he's dead. Something stirred within Eddie, the guy who was going to commit suicide, and he swims over, rescues the rescuer. And when he got out of the water, Eddie said, I don't know what it is, but something happened and I've discovered that I want to live. I've discovered... My life has purpose and has meaning. You know, we can get so immersed in our own stuff and our own troubles instead of looking outward at a needy world. So, number one for Abraham, publicly, God wanted him to be an instrument of blessing. Let's now turn a little closer to home, and that is privately God had a plan for Abraham, and that is to be an influence of God's character in his own family. Verse 19. God continues speaking. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. You know that in the New Testament, Abraham is called the father of those who believe or the father of faith. It's a great title. But you know, he wasn't just the father of those who believe. He was actually a real father to Ishmael, his son, and to Isaac, his son. He was a dad who had a family. And God said, not only do I want you to be a blessing publicly, I want you to be an influence privately. I've given you kids. And I've blessed you in order that through your Precept and your example, you could train the character of these children. I'm going to give this a name. I'm going to call it trickle-down evangelism. Trickle-down evangelism. It's the most effective form of evangelism. It's where a parent models a godly life and teaches children the ways of the Lord, and they hear it, and they see it, and they go, hmm, it works. It works. And it's effective in molding a child. 
So Abraham had Ishmael and had Isaac and was training up these kids. But you know what? Don't think that Abraham's home life was like peachy keen and never had problems. We know that that family had issues. And one issue is that when Ishmael was becoming a teenager, he started scoffing at Isaac and Sarah. And the home became divided. And some of you know what that's like. If your parents have young, young children, it's like, whoa, this is great, what a blessing. Then they grow a little bit and then a little bit more and they turn 13 and 14 and they become the rebel force. They're teenagers. It's a whole new game. Mark Twain gives his advice. He said, things run pretty smoothly till your kid reaches 13. That's the time you need to stick them in a barrel, hammer down the lid nice and snug, and feed them through the knot hole. (laughs) Oh, but he continues. He said, then about the time he turns 16, plug up the knot hole. (laughs) Well, that's Mark Twain. That's not the Bible. And Mark Twain was saying, you know, when they reach 16, you just check out. No, God is saying you can't check out. You've got to let them check you out by what you say and what you do to mold that child's future. So it's sort of like a relay race. Picture it that way. You're running on the track, Dad. You've got the baton in your hand. You're showing your children, this is how you follow God. This is how you love a spouse. This is how you influence a community and a group of friends. This is how you do it. I'm running the race. Watch me. Listen to me. But there's coming a time when I'm passing the baton on to you And it's your turn to run the race. The influence of a godly father cannot be overestimated. It cannot be. Sunday school has your kid for 1% of his life. School has your child for 7% of his life. You have your child in those formative years for 92% of his life. The effect of a godly father cannot be overestimated. Socrates even said to the men of Athens, Why do you turn and scrape every stone to gather wealth and take so little care of your children to whom one day you must relinquish all? Now, I figure if a godless philosopher can have that value, that a New Testament male can have a higher value. Father came home from work one night, tired. He'd work hard all day, and his family knew he works hard all the time, but they just wanted a piece of him, a little bit of time. This bone-weary father comes through the front door, and his little son's there to greet him. His little son says, Daddy, how much money do you make an hour? And the father wasn't in the mood. He said, well, it's none of your business what Daddy makes. Oh, come on, Daddy, just tell me, what do you make an hour? And the father said, okay, look, I'll tell you, but this private information, you don't tell anybody. I make $25 an hour. The little son hung his head, kind of sad, and started walking away to his room. Came back about an hour later with his piggy bank and took out $15. That's all he had in there. He said, Daddy, can I borrow $10? Daddy said, why do you want $10? He goes, Daddy, I'd like to buy an hour of your time. I want an hour of your time. Dad, I know you're busy, but I just want you in my life. Give me an hour of your time. Dads, how are you investing time in your son and daughter's life? When is the last time you went to them on a day off that you had and they had? And you said, hey, 
What do you want to do today? This day is all about you. This is our time together. We have time for this. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians for a moment. Keep a marker, because we're going to cover one small little item back in Genesis. But turn to Ephesians in the New Testament. Chapter 5. You know, chapter 5 and 6 of Ephesians is all about roles in the family. And uh, the apostle addresses different ones within the home. He begins with wives. Now, it's fascinating. I want you to watch this. We're not going to read it all, but a couple verses. He begins, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Can you see what Paul's doing? He's isolating roles. Okay, let me talk to you women, wives. Submit to your husbands. Come here, husbands, over here. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Okay, now I have something for all of you children. You obey your parents. Well, now you know he's going to talk to parents, right? Look what he does, verse 4. And you, what? Yeah, it doesn't say parents. It says you fathers. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, why didn't he address mom and dad? Is it because, well, women don't have any role in raising children? What, are you nuts? Of course they do. Like the vital role. So why does he only address fathers? I'll give you three possible reasons. Number one is that perhaps that was the area of most neglect in a man's life in the church of Ephesus or in the Greco-Roman culture, as it so often is in other cultures, where men think, well, my job is bringing home the paycheck and I'll work in the yard, clean up the garage. The kids, that's your job. Paul is saying, "Uh, you're not skating out of this one. It's a partnership. You have to be involved. And fathers provide the vital link between earth and heaven. I'll just explain that in a moment. You know, I think the cure for crime isn't in the electric chair. It's in the high chair. You train them early. You get involved with them early. And so it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but train them up. Uh, Reason number one, then, could be that because it was an area of neglect that he addresses the fathers. Here's another possible answer to that question. Perhaps because men tend to be or can be perceived to be harsh, he says, fathers, don't provoke your kids to wrath. Don't let the result of your activity in the home is that you train an angry, wrathful child. Now, you know, there's a difference between a man and a woman. My mom was pretty strong, but she had this sweet... My mom was five foot, maybe five one. My dad was six two. I remember when I used to look at my mom and think she was a giant. That changed as I grew. But dad always was that imposing figure and his voice was deeper, it boomed, he was stronger. And a dad can be perceived just by virtue of size and strength and tone of voice to be harsher. So perhaps that's the reason he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. There's a third reason. And I I typically land with this as the answer. It's because he's addressing the father as the head of the home. Yeah, it's a partnership. Yes, mom and dad are involved. But no matter how you divide up the roles, the bulk of responsibility and accountability before God 
for not just providing for the family, but directing the family, discipline issues, etc., rests upon the shoulders of the father. It does. Overcommitted men, listen up, men who are busy building up the careers, noble as that is, and we thank God you do that, listen carefully. And especially any men here who are toying with the temptation of leaving your family altogether for whatever reason, you listen carefully. Jim Dobson writes, The Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It is my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home. You know what? I agree with that. And here's why I agree with that. Because the statistics don't lie. Forty-three percent of American children live without their fathers. And before you say, well, I'm sorry, that's the way it is, so what? Listen to the result of that. Ninety percent of homeless and runaway kids are from fatherless homes. Eighty percent of rapists motivated with displaced anger are fatherless. 71% of pregnant teenagers lack the presence of a father in their lives. 85% of the youths in prisons grow up in a fatherless home. Fatherless boys and girls are twice as likely to drop out of high school, twice as likely to end up in jail, and four times more likely to need help for emotional and behavioral problems. That's why it's so vital that a dad get involved in the life of a child. Now, I can just sort of hear thoughts tumbling around. Gee, Skip, this is Father's Day. <laughs> now, if you were to preach this on Mother's Day, I understand. But, I mean, you're supposed to, like, encourage us today. Give us a pen or something. <laughs> Why the heavy rap? Well, there's a better question to ask than that. The question is, why does so much depend upon the Father? If if what we're saying is true, why does so much depend upon the Father? Number one, because a child's view of God as Father is largely determined from his earthly or her earthly Father. You think about it. We learn to pray, Our Father, Heavenly Father. And when that word is said, all of the baggage that that word has been defined by comes with it. And if you have a great relationship with a father, the idea of God as my father is wonderful. You have a crummy relationship with an earthly dad, you have to get through some stumbling blocks and come to an understanding of what kind of a father God is. It's an impediment or it's a blessing. There's another reason. Because one day that daughter in your house is going to grow up and she's going to want to know what kind of a man should I marry? You will have answered that question for her if you model a godly life. There's a third reason. Someday that son of yours is going to grow up and wonder, what kind of a man should I be in relationship to wife and to children and to God? You will have answered that question in the positive way if you lived a godly life. Now again, look at the fourth verse of Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That's just what God told Abraham. You bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You see, you can't divide that verse, man. 
You can't say, okay, honey, my role is to not provoke him to wrath. Your role is to train him up in the training and admonition of the Lord. No, it's the Father's directive that is given here. Billy Sunday, the evangelist years ago, once said, the tragedy of my own life is that I've led thousands of people to Christ and my own sons aren't saved. Gentlemen, dads, it's easier to build a boy than to repair a man. I see a lot of broken guys. It's easier to build a boy than to repair a man. And it begins here. Let's close off our message this morning. Go back to Genesis 18. God informs Abraham that he has a public purpose for him to be an instrument of his blessing, a private purpose for him to be an influence for God's character within the home. And now there's a third, and that is a personal plan. And that is that just Abraham and God, in that relationship, Abraham is to be an intercessor, a prayer warrior to bring God's mercy to this town. Look at verse 20. The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it, that it has come to me. If not, I will know. And the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham, now watch this, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. A couple things to note. That God is moving in response to an outcry against a city. I don't know who the outcry is from. Could have been from Lot, for all we know. I know Lot was living in Sodom, but in the New Testament, it says his soul was vexed day by day by the ungodliness of the city. Maybe it was his cry that came before God. So just notice that God is moving based upon some outcry. And number two, that God checks it out first and confirms it before he judges it. He doesn't react He waits and is patient, but it reaches a level, like God said back in Genesis 6, my spirit won't always strive with man. He reaches a point where he said, I'm done now. I'm going to act. That was the case here. Now, here we have verse 22, Abraham still standing before the Lord. Okay, what we're about to read in the next few verses is one of the weirdest prayers you've ever heard. But it is a prayer, and it is something to notice. Watch this. And Abraham came near, or approached God, and he said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for fifty righteous persons that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? He said, If I find there forty-five, I won't destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Ah, suppose there should be forty found there. He said, I'll not do it for the sake of forty. And then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty will be found there. 
So he said, I won't do it if I find 30 there. And he said, uh, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 20. And he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Yeah, right. (laughs) Suppose 10 should be found there. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now I know, it doesn't sound much like a prayer. It sounds like an argument. sounds like Abraham's pinning God into a corner, talking him down, right? If you think that, you're wrong. And you're wrong because look at verse 33. When he, when God had finished speaking with Abraham. It wasn't when Abraham was done praying to God. It's when God was finished with Abraham. And the implication in the verse is that God initiated this conversation by revealing to Abraham a possible plan to get Abraham involved. And he led Abraham through this whole thing. And when Abraham responded the way God wanted him to respond... God was done with Abraham. In other words, God's plan all along was to show mercy to those who were righteous in Sodom. But he wanted Abraham as a part of this. He wanted the close, intimate relationship of prayer and dependence upon a personal God to be such that God would move in cooperation with his servant, Abraham. That's the personal connection. You know, by the way, I I, I read through this and I think, the wicked owe a lot to the righteous. They do. You know, God will often bless the wicked just for the sake of the righteous. There are several examples of that. In Genesis chapter 30, Laban's flocks were multiplied for Jacob's sake. In Genesis 39, Potiphar prospered because Joseph worked for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the unbeliever is sanctified by a believing spouse. There are several examples of this in the Bible. But this is what I want to bring you to. You have a man who's listening to God's plan for his life, and it's a balanced plan. It's threefold. Publicly to be a blessing to people. Privately to be an influence for his own children of the character and nature of a loving God. And number three, a personal, prayerful relationship with God. Now think about it. Every one of those three things, the most important is that last one. If you think about it, your own personal walk with God will determine what kind of a person you are publicly. The personal relationship you have with God will determine what kind of a father you are and husband you are within the home. It all starts in the heart of the individual committed to God. So men, dads, you got the whole world in your hands. Whose plan are you going to follow? I suggest... You'd be a blessing to your world. You'd be a role model to your children. And above everything else, you'd be a Christian man who loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. You do that. If you do that, if you do that last one, even, if you start there, you'll give the greatest gift to everybody who knows you. Yesterday at Ruth's funeral, it started at 2 in the afternoon, ended at 3.30. 
Anne Graham Lotz got up. All the children said something. And Anne stood up and I'll never forget, I was sitting just a few chairs behind Billy and she said, I want you to know something. And then she turned to her father, Daddy, I want you to know something. Mama loved you more than anyone else. And Mama loved us children. But I want you to know something, Daddy. Mama loved Jesus more than she loved all of us. Now, you just think about the kind of an impact of that, of that on a child's life. And Billy stood up unexpectedly, and he wanted to say a few words. He said, thank you for coming. And he said, I wish, I wish you could look in the casket right now to see how beautiful she is. She said, I, I, he said, I sat with her last night all alone, the casket open. I just stared in there, and I prayed, and I thought, what a beautiful girl. There's a man who loved his wife, a mom and a dad who loved their children, and loved God more than anything else. What a legacy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you once again for these men who have come. It's Father's Day. It's only appropriate that we worship our Father in heaven, the only perfect Father. Lord, we admit... We don't have perfect marriages. We're not perfect dads. We're not perfect husbands. But we can be good dads and good husbands and have good marriages because we're godly. That's what I pray for. I know that Father's Day can be very hurtful to people who hadn't had good relationships with their own dad. It's a painful day. Some have come very broken and battered and scarred and They're feeling low at this point. Impress upon them, Lord. Impress upon each person how much you love them. That they were worth it for you to come and send your son to die for them. That's how much you love them. I pray the love you have for us would transmit into the love we have for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.